Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Hello, everyone. It is Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. We have wrapped up the school year. Hopefully, all of you are sitting by the pool, drinking some summer cocktail while the kids swim unharmed by the global warming threat and heat wave ravaging our country, and your kids know how to swim despite the lack of lifeguards. It is summer, and we're excited to wrap up the school year with some of our big headlines. We also have a great guest today with Charlie from Emeritus joining us. We've got an action-packed lineup today. Alex, anything that our listeners should be aware of before we dive in? No, it's an interesting week. I think we're going to get into the little bit of the uh, sort of sci-fi futuristic version of EdTech today, which is always fun to talk about. And Charles Schilling, who's the president of Enterprise at Emeritus, is a really great guest. So we'll hear him at the end of the episode. All right. To kick us off, we're ending the school year and K-12 teachers are burned out. We're seeing the teacher shortage continue on. We have EdSource and U.S. News and World Report really coming with some startling numbers around teachers burning out, but also teachers picking other professions based on kind of workload and pay. Cardona warned that basically next fall, we should expect a huge gap in our staffing. We'll probably be looking at 10% teacher shortages with 55% of educators indicating that they are ready to leave the profession. It's an uncertain summer. You know, school administrators and educators are wondering what the fall will bring. And this feels distinct from the pandemic, Alex. This feels almost like a entire sector shift. What's your read? Yeah, I would say it's maybe catalyzed by the pandemic, but it's now definitely threatening to outlast the pandemic. As part of these reporting, we're hearing that 55% of educators are indicating they're ready to leave the teaching profession, according to the National Education Association. You're seeing teachers' unions sounding the alarm. The education secretary is starting to say, we need to revamp the teaching profession, increase salaries, provide incentives. And, you know, these are incentives for difficult-to-staff positions like special education that we've talked about on the show. You know, we've talked about this all year, Ben. It's so interesting. There's been these these different reports about whether this is really happening or whether it's overblown. or And now that the year is over, I think there's universal acknowledgement coming all the way up from the Secretary of Education that it is not overblown. It is absolutely happening. And teachers are just tired of doing all of this incredibly hard and meaningful work in unbelievably difficult circumstances and still not getting the credit or the salaries they deserve. And they're just they're looking for the door. And I think it's very scary for the education community to see that and nobody knows how to deal with it. I think it will last the pandemic, but hopefully the policies that are being sort of tried out or talked about in these articles about raising salary, incentivizing positions, really trying to professionalize. They've talked about this stuff for years and haven't done very much about it. Maybe it's time to actually do it because the teachers are voting with their feet. Yeah, I think this is also the biggest question right now for K-12 ed tech is how can we help? 
And the reaction to EdTech has been mixed from educators. Just this week, an article came out about all of the EdTech solutions that do the same thing and how confusing that is for educators on Medium. So is there a way that EdTech can fill some of these shortages, fill these gaps without inundating educators with yet another tool that does, you know, short form curriculum or does data tracking or something like that? What do you think the EdTech opportunity is and what's the EdTech caution if we're looking at prolonged teacher shortages? I think the opportunity is streamlining and interoperability because, yeah, I mean, we saw the report come out recently from Learn Platform that, you know, teachers use 186 different EdTech tools. I mean, just saying that number makes me tired. I can't even imagine trying to manage that many different types of software in a classroom where you also have many, many students. I think that what it really highlights, as well as that post you mentioned, which I thought was really well-written, we'll put that in our show notes as well, about how EdTech can be redundant at times. I think what it really highlights is the solutions. It's not just about adding more solutions, more tools, more curriculum, more opportunities. It's about actually trying to make teachers' lives actually easier, not in theory and hypothesis easier, actually easier. How can you make fewer tools, fewer data reports, fewer clicks and logins and passwords and still have the impact you need? More support in the ways that teachers need and less, you know, just tools for them to learn and have to implement. And everybody wants that, but it's, I don't think tech companies have really fulfilled that promise and maybe it's time to really step it up. Yeah, really good point on the interoperability and folks like Clever have done wonders to make data interoperability happen, but also functional interoperability is the next level. The other thing at the ed tech entrepreneur level is how could your solution actually provide access to scarce teaching and learning resources or even educators themselves? And it makes me more bullish on virtual learning for AP. For example, if I can't find a physics AP teacher, I can have students for a period go online and take that course. So I think that there will be long-term opportunities for those folks. At the sector level, you know, bigger picture, this could be a really great moment for M&A and roll-ups. And we are super fragmented as a space. And we have a lot of nice-to-have products and fewer painkiller products out there. And so if the private equity firms are listening to our podcast, which I know they are, and we know you're out there, this is such a good moment for consolidation because you can provide a one-stop shop set of solutions for a school district, a school, and then ultimately the educator. This fragmentation is an outcome of the fact that our user and our buyer are so far apart, but there is a real window here to actually line up the interests of the user and the buyer, maybe with a little bit of a higher cost on a per app basis, but on aggregate, a lower cost, and then more efficiency. So it remains to be seen. I'm very skeptical about these pipeline strategies to build the teacher workforce. They've been around, like you said, for 20, 30 years. And the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again, it not working, and then just doubling down on that again. And I think it's, you know, we've been saying this for a while, it's time for that big rethink of how we are going to deliver education 
in a way that still authentically values the unique and important and impactful role of the educator. A hundred percent. I know we have other headlines to cover, but I think this is, you know, interesting news for companies like Subject, like OutSchool, those that are trying to sort of leverage teacherpreneurs and content that can, you know, fill the gaps. But I think, you know, if the Secretary of Education wanted to really lean in to solving this, I think it goes beyond, I mean, yes, they should raise salaries, period, always. We don't pay teachers enough in this country, especially in certain states. But I think they should start to think about how to make the teaching profession actually a really interesting profession that is not as repetitive, that is not as locked into an individual school where teachers have more autonomy about what they teach and who they teach it to. You know, there could be some really, really interesting uh, pivots and changes to what it means to be a teacher. And they should look at some of the most cutting edge teachers, the ones who are doing really, really interesting things that go beyond what you'd expect a regular teacher to do, because I think they probably make up the future of what the profession should look like. So speaking of changes to the teaching profession, one really interesting partnership was announced this week, and it brings us to our next headline, which is really about work-based learning. So Google announced a partnership with Figma as sort of a beta partnership to start bringing design tools like Figma and FigJam to student Chromebooks. I am very excited about this partnership. Figma is one of the small set of absolute must-have cutting-edge design tools used by designers all over the world right now. There's like maybe three or four tools that own the entire market, and Figma is one of the big ones. And basically the idea here is, hey, why shouldn't students be able to practice, access, learn cutting-edge work-level design programs while in school. It, Google and Figma will work together. It'll be free of charge to schools, and it'll be about making both software engineering, but also design and UX design more accessible to younger students. I just say big thumbs up to both of these. I'm really, really, I mean, to this headline, it just really excites me, the idea of bringing real, authentic work tools into the classrooms free of charge. And I think this is exactly the kind of partnership that Google should be pursuing because it passes on enormous value to schools at no cost and gives students of, you know, any means access to high-quality tools, not only high-quality tools, but tools that are being used massively in the workforce. And, you know, on the flip side, there was a really interesting report this week from Georgetown's Center of Workforce and Education, which is one of the leading sort of workforce research institutions in the country, about the path to a good job, which they define for youth, which they define as a job that pays at least $35,000 a year and 57000 at the median for young workers nationwide with cost of living. So they're basically trying to set up, you know, what constitutes a quote unquote good job and what do young adults need to do it and need to do to get it. And and they highlighted that look, between the rising cost of college and post-secondary education, limited access to work-based learning, and the absence of sort of career navigation services, it's become really hard for young adults to find their way into these good jobs. And this is exacerbated for different races. So they actually break it down by gender and race and less than half of non-white women and of Hispanic or black men have access to these good jobs. So it's really a sort of call to arms. And Georgetown has a series of reports on this 
to saying, look, we are not doing a good job as a nation in preparing our young people for access to, you know, baseline good jobs. And that's even more true depending on your background. And so, you know, just to me, the idea of bringing better tools into the classrooms is one step in the direction of that. But it was really, really interesting. And they recommend all sorts of things about investing in, you know, programs that include employer involvement or having a single system from early childhood to jobs. So thinking really K to career rather than K-12 or even K-16. And it's a great report. And I think it's a really important thing to think about at this moment. So I don't know if you got a chance to look through that report, Ben, but what do you think about this work-based learning movement? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of problem solution here that we have in our headline. You know, problem is lack of access to real work-based learning and skills and tools. And then Google doing a partnership with Figma that could literally overnight give 170 million daily active users access to these tools. And, you know, if Google was an ed tech company, which by the way, they are the largest ed tech company in the world. But if they saw themselves as an ed tech company, they would be doing partnerships like this all day long because they are an incredible channel to reach young learners. And from a business standpoint for Figma, they're getting lock-in in a way with early users that you know is going to grease the wheels for them to convert users in the future whereas Canvas or other design tools kind of wait for them to reach adulthood, it does raise some big questions. One is the truism that if it's free, then you are the product. And so if Figma is actually being used by students, how do we societally feel about someone doing essentially marketing to our kids to acquire users? And will they also have the same kind of data bar and standards that we hold ed tech providers to. Number two is when we provide these tools, do we have the right educator capabilities to actually implement well? And this is where I've always been a fan of career switchers coming to the classroom because they bring a lot of practical knowledge around what it's like to work in the workforce into the teaching and learning environment. And, you know, I came straight out of college into the classroom And I had real gaps of how I was preparing kids for the world of work without having really fully participated myself. And then the third thing that I would say is this is part of a movement of micro skilling that I think is quite fascinating. So rather than, you know, Google launching a design course, they're actually just giving access to a tool that you could use just to make your Facebook profile or whatever it is. Like you could use it once. But in that micro way, you're getting exposure to a work-based tool. I've also seen some companies that are doing gig work for high school students where you can do a two-week internship, not a whole summer internship, where you're just getting a taste of that work experience. So the Georgetown data provides the real why. Why do we have to do this? And why should we kind of overcome our concerns about commercialization of kids in this way through Google as a channel. But I would just say, given the on balance, given the pros and cons, I applaud Google's move here. I feel like John Solomon and the Chromebook team is more innovative than the Google Classroom team. And it seems like a really important thing that they could replicate and overnight give kids access to great tools. 
All great points. And I think the moral hazards you raise are real, but I also very much agree that, you know, we could wring our hands about what it means to give kids access to design tools and whether you're locking in customers or favoring a certain company. But while you're wringing your hands, you're going to have another generation of kids grow up without having ever accessed authentic work tools. So I applaud a decision like this. Ben, tell us about what's going on in the metaverse this week. Let's take a quick break. And then all of a sudden, Facebook got in there very cleverly and they gave people free phones, which they couldn't afford anyway, with Facebook built into it. And now all of a sudden the world's opening up. And of course, you're going to believe what you see on this amazing technology. Right. And they were warned over and over again that this was being misused in order to prosecute a genocide on the part of extreme Buddhists and the government. Right. The UN actually said that Facebook had facilitated a genocide in Myanmar. And what happened to them? Nothing. Well, I actually had a great webinar this morning where members of the Meta team were talking about metaverse and learning. And we also saw some articles from Michael Horn, as well as Harvard Graduate School of Education, really thinking about what the metaverse looks like. And I think it's a continuation of our conversation from the last two podcasts. Michael Horn really lays out kind of two components. One, the definition of what the metaverse is. It's always present and has no ending. It can be experienced synchronously by multiple people and ultimately is fully interoperable. So digital tools and assets from one app can be used in others. It essentially has to be one unified world. And then he talks about how we could get there, which kind of echoes some of our conversation, which is multiple metaverses probably pop up and then eventually merge into one. So I think, Alex, you know, Michael Horn's on your side in that eventually they're you know, will be one metaverse. But he also posits that this is really more than Web3. It's almost like the evolution of the internet with this idea that virtual learning is really the kind of angle here and that virtual interaction, engagement, commerce, activities will involve all aspects of our society. When you look at this, both the vision of the future and then the how we get there, what comes up for you and what resonates, but also what seems a little bit off? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, we've been discussing this for a couple of weeks, and it is absolutely fascinating subject. I feel like we could talk about it forever. But it is, I think, the question of the metaverse, as you mentioned, Michael Horn says, you know, the metaverse is defined as a singular institution. That's sort of the actual vision, again, similar to like the internet. But if you think about the internet right now, and you think about sort of where we've come as a society in the last, what, 25 years since we've really been an internet connected world, there is pretty much one real internet, but there are these funny offshoots. There's the sort of Chinese censored internet. There's the European internet that has all its privacy regulations on top of it. There's the dark web where, you know, it's sort of people find their own access to it and it's sort of, you know, subterranean behind the regular internet. And I think that probably this is a good metaphor for where things may go with the idea of the metaverse. You probably, if the metaverse does come into existence, there would be one sort of main metaverse, but there'd be different offshoots of it or versions of it or sort of uh, continents within it. Maybe we could say 
which I think is hard to get one's mind around. I think the big danger, as we mentioned last week, is that unlike the internet, which was created by a governmental service program, the DARPA initiative, the companies that are fighting to make the metaverse are all private companies. So that's what I think is the real scary version of this, is that the idea of having one metaverse that everything folds into, but that's completely owned by Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, that feels a little strange, uh, maybe more than a little strange. That, I think, is what's really nuts. And, you know, as we were talking about this sort of vision of the metaverse, is the thing that kept coming up for me, and I know this is sort of a weird metaphor, is when the subway system started in New York, you actually had multiple systems. You had the IRT on the west side of Manhattan and the BMT, which is the Brooklyn-Manhattan subway, and they were different systems. They had different, you had to buy onto them separately. They didn't connect with one another. They were competitive at the time. And over time, of course, they became part of one system. And now the New York subway system is an enormous system where everything is connected. But I can see a similar trajectory and similar to what Michael Horn is saying happening here, where you maybe have different types of metaverses, but then they realize they have to all be interoperable to really get the most benefit. And then they have to go through this whole process of figuring out how do they become interoperable? How do they have the same currencies and the same language and the same, you know, data structures and the same way of doing a profile or how do you make, you know, everything that happens on one transfer to the other. That could be very messy, but it also is probably, I think it's definitely a possible way that it would go. So I don't know. I'm excited to see where this all goes. Part of it scares me. I have visions of Ready Player One and other sort of, you know, metaverse dystopias, snow crash, you know, in my head whenever we talk about this. But I do think it's exciting that the education space is sort of one of the leading aspects of how we think about the metaverse, that it's not being led entirely by commerce or being led entirely by travel or I don't even know, something else. People are really thinking about how can the metaverse be used for education. I'm happy to be part of that discussion because I hope it's going to be a big part of what the future of tech looks like. Well, and the reason for that is because online 2D learning is clearly inferior to in-person 3D learning. And so the question is, is immersive learning, which is really kind of the phrase that people have coined around metaverse learning, is immersive VR learning at the same level or better or worse, or when is it better and when is it worse than in-person learning? That's the promise and potential for metaverse in our space. Other industries like, you know, Amazon shopping there's really not a huge value add, although, you know, you might be able to try on clothes or experience things immersively. But I think that those, the delta between experience is not as great as the delta between 2D versus immersive learning could be. You know, one thing that I think is important in this discussion is to understand that, you know, your subway car analogy is helpful. Some subway systems win based on speed and efficiency. Other transportation systems win on safety and others on, you know, how good the experience is. And, you know, if you think about the infrastructure that the different metaverses are building for it to be a safe place for learners, but especially kids, they would really need to invest in early days in security infrastructure that makes it a safe place and a kind of building infrastructure that allows for nimble, agile development rather than kind of 
you know, 20 year construction projects, stretching the analogy probably too far. And so I do think it is possible that the learning, the optimal metaverse for learning may not win the battle if there is a singular metaverse, because the battle might be won or lost on other things like speed and efficiency. So I think that it's important for education folks, even if you're not involved now, to be advocates of what creates a great learning space, and then ultimately hope that each platform can adopt that and respect that. On the metaverse topic, as Alex said, we could go on and on and on, but we will switch to our next big headline, which is around AI. And the announcement in the New York Times and then the Contra announcement in CNN around Google developing sentient AI. The kind of sub-story here is a individual at Google, I believe his name is Blake Lemoyne, announced that in the kind of language AI system at Google, he had identified an AI bot that was aware of its own existence and essentially sentient, able to kind of direct its own learning. And he flagged that as a red flag. And immediately the rebuttals came from Google, from major media outlets. And so there is this question of, is it true that there's sentient AI? But second, like the fact that somebody in 2022 could be raising the red flag that there's sentient AI raises the really high likelihood possibility that by 2030, there is some form of sentient AI and how that can ultimately affect all of us, but also education and learning. I mean, once AI can teach itself to learn, what does that do for us, for ed tech and for our world? I'm going to cede some of my time for you, Alex, as you heard this news, what was going through your mind? Yeah, so this news escaped my notice for most of this week, but you noticed it and brought it up, and it is, I don't even know how to begin talking about it. I mean, for those who have, I'm a dilettante here, but for those who have sort of paid attention to the history of AI, there's always been this concept of the singularity as sort of the moment when an artificial intelligence becomes, basically gets on a trajectory to surpass human intelligence and to replicate itself and sort of takes over basically as the most intelligent species life on the planet. And it was a theory by the scientist, sort of speculative scientist, Ray Kurzweil, I think in the 80s, quite a while ago. But when you hear something like, oh, somebody just said they're sensing AI at Google, it makes me feel like almost like somebody mentioning that, you know, hey, somebody at NASA just said we found extraterrestrial intelligence and they're just trying to figure out if it's real or not. It's like, oh, that's kind of big news. I don't know what it means. I don't know if it's real or not. Some of those experts they're quoting here are some of the, you know, top, top, top people in machine learning. And they say that, hey, that's not really possible yet. But just the specter of, of sentient AI, it goes way beyond education. It would basically be a change in the history of humanity, of everything. So it's a big deal. I don't know what to make of it. I'm definitely going to read more about this subject as it keeps happening. It would be a, an enormous deal for learning and pretty much everything else. <laughs> Part of why we added it to the show is I think the headlines are dominated by like crypto's downfall and interest rates rising. And this feels like a really important story that got buried in that avalanche of news. 
And the implications on education have been clear for some time, which is if you're teaching kids to do things that AI can do, it will be irrelevant in the future because the AI will be doing it. And I do feel like in education, the vast majority of our educators have been pretty disappointed with the benefits of AI to our learning space. They often don't see, or we often don't see how AI is changing our worlds, changing careers and so on. But this sentient AI story is really, I think, like a potential watershed announcement that changes the future of learning and work because the moment that the AI goes from rote tasks to being able to untangle complex tasks and essentially drive its own learning, then we as human beings need to kind of define our territory of what do the humans do when the AI can do lots of other things. It also is a good call out around how big tech has really reached into education as a sphere and the applications of AI from big tech are already hitting some of our schools and school systems and universities and so on. And, you know, if we think that the government is going to regulate it or that people don't have the resources to really invest in AI, the fact that this was kind of a whistleblower and then so swiftly kind of crunched down, you know, makes you really wonder, you know, if this is the fire drill, what does the real fire look like? It's funny to see how we service this one on like Tuesday And even now in all kind of major news outlets, whether it's Washington Post, New York Times, et cetera, no one's really following up on it. So you're going to put this one on a simmer. But for those of you who are listening in, let us know if you're seeing anything interesting or weird about this. Let's take a quick break. Have you ever wondered how Netflix keeps its engineers happy? Why engineers turned founders make some of the most successful companies? Or how the CTO of an AI company talks to his friends and family about artificial intelligence? Dev Interrupted is a podcast about engineering problems told by the leaders who solved them. Whether you're a VP of engineering, team lead, or at a coding bootcamp, Dev Interrupted is the best weekly podcast for engineers who want to understand what's going on in the world of software and tech. Each week, we dive into the insights, processes, culture, and know-how that turn engineers into leaders and companies into unicorns. Find Dev Interrupted wherever you download your podcasts and listen today. And there's been a history of these whistleblowing tech employees tending to be right, even if they get silent. So I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but there's something very, very interesting here. By the way, quick correction here. So the Kurzweil theory came out in 2005, and currently his prediction is that the singularity will occur by 2045. So that's the official guess for when machine learning will take the helm. On much, much, much more banal news than that. Our last headline is really about colleges and, you know, higher ed beat and what's going on with student loans, as well as sort of the enrollment crisis. We've been following this for a few weeks and we'll keep this pretty short. Basically, there's been a raft of articles this week about the ongoing sort of back and forth between the Biden administration's potential plans to cancel some amount of student loan debt. Some want even more debt canceled and then Others saying, no, it's a political problem to even consider it because it would be considered forgiving, you know, middle class debt or there'd be resentment politics if people 
who already had to pay off their debt saw that others were getting it paid off. So there's just been a huge back and forth here. My personal take is I think any forgiveness is good, just that I don't care about the, I don't know. I think that people are overthinking the political ramifications way too much. I think they should just do it. But I think maybe the more interesting part of that story is just that the fact that Biden is not seeing student loan forgiveness as the sort of slam dunk that you might think it would be, uh, especially when he was running a couple of years ago, sort of belied the underlying, the change in the perception that four-year colleges and college debt is sort of like the best path to the middle class and it's too expensive and it should be brought down. I think sort of the common wisdom on that has now been muddied by some sort of side issues about like, you know, who gets forgiven and whatnot. I think that the more important story, I think you agree with this, Ben, is that like just the narrative on college being like, oh, it's super, super important and everybody should go or most everybody should go, but it's gotten too expensive. So the government can bail some of us out and sort of give back some of the money that's gone into that. Somehow that story doesn't seem to be as sort of mainstream as you might expect. And instead, I think people are just sort of not even knowing where to put their minds or their chips when it comes to college. Is college the best idea for everybody? Is it a sham? Is it the best path to the middle class? Is it too expensive? Should it be rethought? So I feel like there's a sort of mass confusion about the role of higher ed. What do you think about the student loan debate, Ben? I totally agree with you. The kind of mainstream thought that college is the surest path to the middle class is being fundamentally questioned in a way that it has not since, you know, World War I, II kind of era. And part of that has to do with cost to value. So it's viewed as really high cost, and this is where the loans come in. But also things like relevance, things like, you know, the four-year chunk versus smaller chunks. And I think we've gotten to a place where from both affluent families and low-income families, if your 18-year-old comes to you and says, I am going to choose an alternative path that includes X, Y, and Z, that parents and families who are also voters are willing to listen to those paths in a way that they haven't meaningfully been willing to listen to. So then the policy implication is by continuing to forgive loans, do we actually create perception or incentives to perpetuate a system that now we're questioning the value of? What is also foundationally interesting is Democrats versus Republicans are starting to unite on this question of the value of higher ed. Republicans often from a cultural war standpoint where the university represents the elites and liberal thinking and kind of a cancel culture. And so their kind of right-wing attacks have really taken a big hit on four-year colleges and their institutional standing in our society. And then on the left wing, it's really around looking at race, access, and debt and class issues. So both race and class issues. And things like the admission scandals where you're seeing elites buying in access, those types of things have really hurt universities on the progressive front. So I think university presidents right now are looking for who are my political allies? And they're losing allies left and right. And meanwhile, our ed tech colleagues are stepping in to fill the gap. And there's meaningful questions about the quality and around churn and so on. So it's just a sign that the Biden administration doesn't view this as a slam dunk. It's money in the pockets of many of their voters. 
the fact that they would slow play that signals like a long-term change in political strategy that we've got to take into account. So I know we've covered some pretty deep topics this week. We've got our game coming up. We've got our interview. But let's move to M&A and funding headlines. What do you have for us, Alex? Yeah, we'll just do some rapid fire here for funding. So, you know, last week we saw a sort of banner week with seven rounds of $50 million or more in the ed tech space. And this week we are seeing much smaller rounds, much more in line with, you know, where we had been. But some really interesting rounds nonetheless. So the two biggest that we saw coming through this week were Care Academy raised $20 million. Care Academy is a really interesting company that basically is about training, finding, and placing caregivers in home health roles. And, you know, home health aides is basically the fastest growing job in the U.S. and has been for a while or one of the very, very top growing jobs. So this is a round of funding that's going to go across the product and impact a million caregivers by the end of next year. That's sort of tangentially ed tech, but there is a training program that comes with this. This is really about getting people into this incredibly high demand job that there are not enough people to fill. So really interesting. And the founder of that company is a really interesting founder as well. So hopefully we will have her on in future weeks. We also saw Paper Cup raised $20 million. Paper Cup is a company that uses artificial intelligence to automatically dub videos into different languages, which is anybody who works in international ed knows, or even US ed knows how valuable that is to be able to shoot a video once and have it be translated into all the languages of learners is a potential game changer for education. And Paper Cup does have an e-learning division. A lot of its use case is about translating educational video. We also saw a company called Kinside raise $12 million. That's a marketplace for parents of young children to find qualified caregivers. It has an overlap with Care Academy as well as other rounds we've seen recently around the care space. Cloverleaf, which is a coaching and mentoring platform that uses well-known personality frameworks to send individualized content to employees in a B2B model. Raised $9 million. That's Cloverleaf. Go My Code is a Tunisian-based bootcamp provider in 12 different African countries. They raised $8 million for a less expensive version of bootcamps. And so that's a nice boost for the African edtech space. Indian edtech startup Experto raised 50 million rupees in seed funding from AngelList and others to basically expand their mentoring platform. Metacrafters.io raised almost $5 million, $4.5 million for Web3 development education. They have grants from Solana, Avalanche, Flow, and Polygon. Those are all different big Web3 players. And e-learning virtual reality startup GeniusX raised almost $2 million for unique, interactive, immersive learning experiences. That's a VR-based company. So some really interesting rounds there. The only M&A that came across our radar was that IXL Learning, which is a learning leader out of California that does K-12 content for the most part, acquired language learning software developer Curiosity Media, ostensibly to expand their product offering into language as well as other things. They, They do Curiosity Media is all about communicating in Spanish and English. So that makes sense for IXL's portfolio. Next up, we'll talk to Charles Schilling, the president of enterprise at EdTech company giant Emeritus. 
So we're on to our interview, and today we have Charlie Schilling of Emeritus. Welcome, Charlie. Hey, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, Alex. Thanks. So, Charlie, you've helped consumer education companies build enterprise arms, and we've seen a lot of this B2B you know, model coming out of B2C companies. Are we seeing a convergence here, or is there a certain sequencing and how do you think about like being an entrepreneur in a company building out that B2B arm? Yeah, for sure. And I'd say it definitely is a theme. I've seen it personally in two instances. Um, the first being General Assembly, where I helped lead their enterprise business. Um, and then obviously more recently, my current job at Emeritus, where my team is tasked with building our enterprise practice in the US, UK, and Europe. I have a colleague who does that in India, the Middle East, and Asia, another colleague in Latin America, another colleague in China. So it's a much more global platform at Emeritus. But yeah, look, I think absolutely it's a theme. Um, and I think it's a theme for two reasons. One is on the mission front. If you believe that the job is to help upskill more people so that they can do better by their families, communities, et cetera, et cetera, a great place to find them is it within companies, literally, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people across the planet, who, by the way, if we can change the pay or dynamic and have companies actually foot the bill, a much bigger audience with more willingness to pay than individuals with discretionary income who confront education or, at least from a U.S. context, a FICO score high enough to you know, have a credit card to pay for this stuff. So anyway, we think there's a mission part of this. But then also, and you know, for this crowd who are many of whom are business practitioners themselves, B2B businesses in general tend to be stronger business models than B2C businesses because they are more likely to repeat. So there's absolutely a financial reason for companies to want to do this as well. Let's take a quick break. Entrepreneurship doesn't have to be a lonely road anymore. Hi, we're Terry and Sarah. And we're your business BFFs and the co-hosts of the Safer Seat Podcast. We bring more females to the table, share advice, and have real and raw conversations that give behind the scenes of what being in business is really like. We celebrate the success and normalize the struggles that you can face in entrepreneurship and life. You can sit with us and listen in because we've saved a seat for you. Yeah, I often tell venture capitalists who love the growth curve of B2C businesses that actually in education, it's all about retention. And the lifetime value of B2B businesses is just far superior. And also, you know, you have higher average customer value. So the idea that you can really provide services on top of your product when it's in an enterprise context is profound. Yeah, absolutely. And it really actually was as I was exploring. So I joined Emeritus in COVID. I started my job in December of 2020. So as I was learning about it, one of the things that I found most compelling and what ultimately led me to join the company is, and if you look at just our short courses, 41% of those participants get their tuition reimbursed, at least in some way, by their companies. Same thing among participants in our senior executive program. So take, for example, we've got a Wharton CHRO program, which is an 18-month-long high price point program. 50% of participants in that program or in all of those programs as a group get their tuition reimbursed, at least in part companies. And so in a way, you know, Emeritus is best known for a big global B2C business, but more or less of it is B2B anyway. So I found that very compelling. So, Charles, you're the president of the enterprise business at North America and Europe Focus. And as you mentioned, you know, we've seen a shift in the entire 
EdTech landscape recently about who pays for education, with more employers being looked to to sort of foot the bill for education and training in order to really get a really amazing talent pool and sort of build retention. I'm curious about how you, as the enterprise lead, sort of think about your work within the larger emeritus organization. And how do you function as an entrepreneur within a large organization that, as you say, also has a very large B2C arm? Yeah, with well-padded elbows <laughs> is my answer to that question, which is, and I say that somewhat in jest, because you know this is, look, it's a strategic imperative for us Back to the reasons we talked about earlier, it is the way that we can extend our mission to make the world's best education more accessible and affordable. So everyone understands why we need to do it, but it's not necessarily something that comes naturally. Meaning if take department by department, our CMO for a long time, our CPO for a long time have been geared themselves, but also geared their operations around what's going to provide the most utility for individuals out there in the world who pay for this stuff themselves. And so we've really, as a group, and I said on our executive team, so we as a group have had to rethink how we do all of the things that we do really to appeal to both audiences, you know, those in the B2C channel and those in the B2B channel. But what we realize is at the end of the day, you know, we serve professionals. So these are all the same types of learners at the end. They may be on different sides of the market, right? Companies have skill gaps that they need to fill, but so do individuals. And so the question is, how can we develop really meaningful, impactful content that are going to help people do their jobs better or help them get new jobs? But that absolutely causes some rethinking and a mindset shift about how and what we do. Yeah, I have lots of scars from like product roadmap battles where it's like, okay, here are the 15 things that our users need, but our B2B buyers also need these administrative tools, you know, how do you think about the payer being separate from the user? And how does Emeritus provide value to the enterprise and not just at the individual user level? Yeah. And then you hit on, I'm sure we've seen many of the same challenges, right? In general, a consumer, they may not be happy with whatever LXP a given company in the ed tech space happens to use, you know, be it Canvas or something else. But if they like the content, they're going to take it companies obviously have the power dynamic is different, right? If you can't figure out a way to integrate into their LXP or LMS, you're not going to be able to play ball and function in that environment. And so, of course, the challenge is that can be if you serve companies A and B, those can be two radically different software platforms. And that, again, whole another set of considerations. But I think you know, so we have a new CTO who just joined us, Bushan Heda from Intuit, who's fantastic. And we've got real expertise in how these things can be done, you know, in a way that I think causes less tech lift than maybe it did five years ago or so. So we, we are very aware that we want to do this. I think it also speaks, and look, we're obviously not the only player in the space, but it speaks to the value of platforms who can provide companies choice in this way and prevent you know, individual companies to have to go to every single provider of education out there in the world and gather these course elements on their own. We wanted to ask about the effect of the pandemic on Emeritus. We noticed on the podcast last month that it was a historic shift where the number of online MBAs outnumbered the number of full-time in-person MBAs. And that was for the first time in history in 2022. And I'm really curious about how you've seen the sort of COVID era for emeritus and whether you've seen a shift in consumer and behavior on the individual or enterprise side 
and a more of an acceptance of online learning in the business domain. Yeah, absolutely. So I think clearly the online education space in general was a beneficiary of COVID in that people had either more time on their hands, were going to offices less, driven in part by the great resignation or looking for new things, want new skills. So all of those things I think are true. But the underlying elements, I think, were just as true pre-COVID, meaning like the need for individuals to upskill themselves and companies to think more progressively about how they can you know, take a proactive role in the skills that they want to build themselves. But then also, even pre-COVID, there was more acceptance of online as a medium, even within particular geographies. I mean, I remember when I was at General Assembly, we served a major professional services firm that has a big presence in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Online ended up being a great solution for them. And this is circa 2016, because if your client is in Northern Virginia, but your home office is in Silver Spring, like you don't want to commute, you know, for two hours to get to your evening course, even though it's super cool that your employer is offering you that course. So anyway, my point is pre-COVID, those two elements existed. I think what COVID did is smack them together in a way that the companies realized they had bigger problems to solve. Individuals realized they could do something about it. And Everyone was on Zoom anyway, so they realized that they could you know, remove a lot of the friction by accessing this program online. For us specifically at Emeritus, and there we did a lot of work on this just internally with our own colleagues, some of our colleagues in Mumbai, just as an example, were spending two and a half hours a day commuting each way, so five hours of time, which for some employees, super important on some days but for all employees, not important all of the time. And so that is five hours of your life, you know, obviously for your family, whatever the things are that you do outside of the office, but also to do things like learning, right? And be quite purposeful about, yeah, you know what? I now an hour or an hour and a half of found time every week, I'm going to devote it to, you know, upskilling myself and trying to do better in my own career. And I think that'll last. Yeah, Charlie, I think that that's really a helpful insight. And you know, we talked a little bit about how COVID has accelerated some trends that have been long lasting. As you look five to 10 years out, you're talking to so many employers, this theme of employers getting in on education, upskilling or education as a benefit, etc. How do you see that evolving? And for us, but also for our kids, like what do you think their relationship will be with employers and their learning going forward? Well, I absolutely believe the, the big shift is, so around, I'm shockingly, because I shocked myself at this, I'm now middle-aged, but I remember that the, you know, the idea was you went to high school, you went to college, maybe you went to graduate school and you accrue all these skills, but then more or less you deplete them over time, right? Like you gain the skills and then you give them to your employer. Now I think there's a mindset shift, which is people really do want to continue to learn throughout their professional lives and, you know, hopefully life in general, but that they need to because the world changes so fast, right? I mean, I'm not one myself, but software engineering friends of mine, and I really remember this from my GA experience, the coding languages will change. Like what they were five or 10 years ago is totally different than they are today and will be five years down the road. So the key is teaching or reteaching, in some cases, adults how to learn. And I think that's something that is driving a big shift here. But that also that the best employers on earth want to be known as places where people can continue to learn. Right after business school, I was at Boston Consulting Group, which even then, and this is like 
you know, circa 2008 was spending $20,000 per year per employee on continuing education. And they do that because they know it's a competitive differentiator for them in the market. And so I think more and more companies are recognizing that understanding that they can you know, do better by their own businesses, but also retain people for longer in happier ways. And that there are really great models out there about how to do that, including in ways that broaden the aperture on who ought to be employed from a DEI perspective, which is not limited to people that can pay from college themselves or take on debt to do it. That's a really interesting perspective. And I love your metaphor of sort of in the past, people would learn, then give what they had learned to their employer as it sort of depletes for them as the skills get obsolete over time. But that's really not the model anymore. I think that sums up what we've seen a lot in the space. I wanted to ask you one question that may be a little bit orthogonal to what you're doing at Emeritus, but it's very interesting. So Emeritus recently made its first foray into the K-12 industry. It acquired ID Tech, which is a technical camps and courses that are designed for students. And I'm a long-term fan of ID Tech, actually. I've sent kids up to there many years. My nephew is going this summer. I'm curious about that acquisition and if it has any bearing on the enterprise side of the house. Do you see education for children as a possible benefit for employers to give to employees? A thousand percent. And to all the listeners, I promise I did not plant that question. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, absolutely. So look, the rationale behind that, that combination is really twofold. Number one, if you think about it from a university partner standpoint, we serve the same partners, right? I mean, one of the first things ID Tech did was run I mean, a week-long or other summer camp experiences on the campus of Stanford University in Palo Alto. So, you know, we're in the same pool there on the university partner side. How can we, Emeritus as an entity, provide more value to our university partners? And ID Tech is, is certainly a part of that theme. But to your point, Alex, on the benefit front, a thousand percent. I mean, I'm sure we've all worked for large and maybe even medium or small companies that have, you know, perks and benefits like, I don't know, money off the dry cleaner or access to a gym membership, which, as you can obviously imagine or maybe experience, very, very few people use. What an incredible benefit if you could log on to your corporate intranet and find out that you could send your seven-year-old to a, you know, Roblox coding course for a week and that that, you know, call it $350 benefit was paid for entirely by your company. And it kind of goes back to the same end, which is so 90% of ID tech participants go into four-year college. If we can do a better job working with employers to put more people at the front end of that funnel, including, by the way, those who are traditionally left out of higher ed and the workforce for that matter, all the better. And so we think that, again, companies have a big role to play in pushing that and that it's actually the kind of thing that a given employee ought to demand of their employer in the same way that you know, most of us, at least in a U.S. context, would be loath to work for an employer that doesn't provide healthcare benefits. These type of education benefits should become standard. Well, Charlie, this wraps up our time. It's been so informative to hear from you. There's so many entrepreneurs out there trying to build, you know, that B2B or B2C parallel business. And it's incredible to see how successful you've been in such a short period of time. And also just great to hear about how you see the space evolving with employers really driving learning and value for their employees. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you to our listeners. If you have any more questions for Charlie, 
please put them in the comments on our LinkedIn posts and we'll be sure to get those questions over to Charlie. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Alex. That's it for this week in EdTech. Thanks to our guest, Charles Schilling from Emeritus. See you next week. And remember, if it happens in EdTech, you'll hear about it here on This Week in EdTech. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com. Yeah.